blessings to all of you. You know, we're, we're leaving our New Year's series. We're transitioning into a completely new one. You know, the Life Apps was great. It was a great way for us to open up the year. We got a lot of great feedback as well, just about, you know, how we've been talking about integrating faith and work and thinking about life. And we had a lot of video pieces that were connected to that, that were practical. And we're really looking forward to doing actually a 2.0 version of the Life Apps in the, uh, in the fall, actually. But right now, we have this idea of uh, transitioning life. And this is designed to take us into Easter. It's a journey of a sort that we're hoping everyone will make together. And it's a journey that is designed to sort of be approached at three levels. Um, from, in one sense, this series is about the transformation of a man who was initially the youngest of Jesus' disciples, a man who was known as John. And part of what we want to do is watch how the Lord really transformed his life and changed it. And then along the way, we're hoping, as we think about how God transformed this man, we're hoping that we will also be thinking about how the Lord might want to transform things in us. And then Jesus himself, the one who transforms life by the way in which he went to the cross and rose again and changed the essence of what death is and the meaning of life. All of these themes are combining. But a big part of it is for us to be able to grow through this time as well. So I'm going to ask God to bless our time together and briefly allow us to be able to interact with his words. And so, Lord, you know, I just really invite your presence to come and to meet us. Uh, there's not a one of us that doesn't have some area of our life that I think we know we need some transformation in, that there is something that we, we need to see happening. And, um, I, you know, I pray that we'd be open to that. I pray that we would be, learn and grow together and that the time that we're investing in this moment would not be in vain, but it would, it would matter because our heart is open. And so I just pray for that blessing over every one, of, every one of us, grace and mercy, peace, the life and holiness of God among us. In your name I pray it. Amen, Lord. So this is the, really a message that has to do with John. I'm going to introduce him a little bit and talk about the power of change. The... Uh, the disciple who we know as John, sometimes he's called the apostle of love. That's what he became ultimately known for. But he didn't start out that way. And he and his brother James, we know, were fishermen. And I want to have us just read the initial calling and uh, look at Mark 1 with me. It says, one day as Jesus was walking, <coughs> walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee that he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water for they fished for a living. They were fishermen. And Jesus called out to them, come, come and follow me, and I will show you, using a play on words, I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once, and they followed him. And a little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons. And here's the introduction of James and John, John in particular, the one we're going to focus on in the coming weeks. They were in a boat. They were actually repairing their nets. And he called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father, Zebedee, in the, in the boat with the hired men. And so this is our first introduction to John. One of the things we know clearly is that he was a fisherman. He grew up in a fishing family. His father, his brother, his, his friends, his closest friends, they were all fishermen. So sort of like if we have a, a kind of way, uh, maybe some of us have a very distinct uh, life work in which the people that we most interact with uh, even perhaps even our family is involved in it. It's not as common necessarily, but in John's case, 
his entire world was a fisherman's world. And it meant that he, he lived it, he breathed it, it was in his blood. Um, and that fishing life was based around a place that's going to become very well known. It was based around the Sea of Galilee. That's where he spent the majority of his time working. That's where he was when Jesus brought him into another place to think of his life in a very different way. He had been a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. Now, just to quickly to remind everybody where things are at geographically, because the Bible takes place in real place, real time. It is still a place that we can see today. Um, one of the things you can see there is that Israel is right off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And if you were just to go north and east, you're in the middle of what is the center of the world's news right now. I mean, even whether it's Jordan to the east or you go up north, I should say, you see you're in the area of Lebanon and Syria, Iraq, further east, you get into Iran. These are areas, a lot of stuff is happening right now. We know that. But this is still, still something that is good for us to be aware of where it's actually taking place. Now, the Sea of Galilee itself looks a little bit more like this, and I'm going to show you here. This, this sea, which is not, it's called the Sea of Galilee, but it's really a lake, and uh, it's shaped like a, a harp. I've been there more, a couple of times, and it's beautiful. Um, more, one of the times I was there, really just exactly like this, the, the time of the day, the, the hues, the pastels, the oranges, the grays, the blues. Um, even a little bit of the pink there. It's just, it's a beautiful, when it's serene, it's just uh, inviting. And it, you can, it's not that difficult to walk back in time in your eyes, mind, in the mind, and through the eye of the mind, and start to imagine what it was like in Jesus' day when James and John were working on the sea. There's still people who fished in the Sea of Galilee. Now, I say that because that place also is capable of becoming um, extremely you know, uh, stormy as well. Winds can come right over the, the hills, and all of a sudden, this quaint lake, this Sea of Galilee, becomes this massive churning, uh, you know, place where, where it's, it's stormy weather hits it, it, it changes completely. It's like a totally different person. It's, it almost becomes schizophrenic. It can go from serene to and sublime to chaotic and stormy and crazy. And I say that because that was their life. That was their home. It was like a, it, that sea was what they knew. It was like a second home to them. And it appears that their business had been somewhat profitable. I want to lay this foundation because it's going to be helpful for us. They, they were not necessarily rich, but they, they weren't. But what they were was they had enough of a profitability in their business that they had some free time to pursue some interests. And we know that they did that. They, um, they had the ability to pursue a bit of a hobby and, or at least something that compelled them. And what we know compelled these four men had to do with the common interest they shared in the spiritual heritage of their people. They were actually very interested in spiritual things. And there had been a lot of talk going on at the time that there was this man who had appeared onto the scene who reminded everybody of a prophet of ancient days, like an Old Testament prophet. It had been years since anyone had seen anyone like this. He was a man who stayed outside of culture. He was a man who also had the name John. People called him John the Baptist because he baptized people into the waters in anticipation, under repentance, in anticipation of the coming of Messiah, whom he said was about to come and appear, and who he said he was to prepare the way for, like a herald trumpeting or like a, a forerunner saying, he is coming, he is coming. But John, who had triggered the interest of these four, Peter, James, 
Andrew, John, um, he, was, he was just like a dynamic person. Again, he was an ascetic. He, he lived sparsely. He lived in the desert. He came and he would talk like God was talking. It was just, it was compelling, intriguing. And for him to say, Messiah, all that has been promised is about to happen. The one who's been anticipated is about to come. It just created an, elect an electricity in the air. A lot of people thought maybe this is the time when God is going to send a Messiah who will be the ultimate warrior deliverer, who will throw off the shackles of Rome, who are oppressing us as a people, making us pay taxes, fl flying their flags at certain places, reminding us always on a whim that we are essentially compelled to do whatever they ask. So there was a part of them that was looking for real deliverance. There were others who said, he's going to show us the way of God like no one ever has. But they were excited. And when John said, the one who is coming, I'm not even worthy. This is John the Baptist, as they called him. I'm not even worthy to, to tie his shoe. That's how great he is. They were filled with anticipation. And when Jesus came, you must, it, it has to be admitted, they, they were somewhat less than inspired initially because he didn't look like what they anticipated. But when John said, there he is, and the first thing he says is, there he is, there he is, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was an interesting first introduction. Like, of all the things he could have said, like, there he is, the king. There he is, the deliverer. There he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was an interesting introduction. It was compelling in its own way. It already anticipates the sacrificial life of Jesus and the cross. It's all there at the beginning moment. But we know that John and, and, and James and Andrew and Peter are compelled by Jesus, and they have this interaction with him. Now, as far as John is concerned, um, just give a quick picture of him, okay? The John that emerges from the Gospels is not a one-dimensional man. He's like many of us. He's got many sides. There's a certain kind of complexity to him that initially might not be apparent. He was a fisherman, no question. He was a fisherman, and therefore we may assume he was capable of holding his own in a fisherman's world, which had a lot of... Because, again, that was, a, that was primarily a physical world. It was a physical, if I can say it this way, a kind of a male world. Um, he, he was engaging with, his, with men a lot. And on the surface, it may have appeared that John was kind of one-dimensional, but I assure you he wasn't. There was a lot more going on underneath the surface. I mean, one of the things we know is as we walk with John is, that, yes, he was... He was a fisherman. Yes, he was very comfortable in a physical world. Um, but in his heart, there was a heart of a poet. A lot of times people box people into something, don't they? We can do that. Oh, this is how they are. But underneath the surface of this man, there was a heart of a poet, a heart of an artist, a heart of a mystic. A, you might even say a dreamer. It was there in him. It was just locked down. And so what, and we're going to watch, we're going to watch in the days ahead how Jesus sort of unravels him and brings him out. But, but we also know a couple other things about John. This is going to show up in the weeks ahead as well, is that he had a ferocious, he and his brother, actually, he had a ferocious temper. I mean, a really bad one. And he also, you know, along with that ferocious temper, though, there was something burning inside of him that we might say were the embers of a loving heart. The embers, when Jesus touches them and moves in them, will eventually be fanned into a flame of love that will end up allowing so many people to be warmed and, and helped and enlightened by what he, who he becomes. But I say that love is the dominant characteristic of John because if you study, oh, some of us may not know this, but he has, he, five books are connected to John in the New Testament. 
a lot of times we only think of the Gospel of John, which is the first one, as being the primary book that is connected to John. But John's got, John actually is used by the Lord to pen five books of the New Testament. The first one, yes, the Gospel, the good news of John that talks about the good news of Jesus, the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's a great, it's well known. It, it, the dominant concept of John's Gospel is that Jesus is the Son of God and, and God loves us. And love is all over John's gospel. Think about the key verse that many of us know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have the undying life of God now and forever. That's the theme of it. But if later on, if you read the New Testament, a lot of us are reading through the New Testament. Towards the end of the New Testament, there are three little letters, we call them epistles, that are penned by John. We call them 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And those little letters actually have, have potency to them. And their theme is also love, but it's not so much the love of God. The theme of those little letters, which are written to believers, is that love that is disconnected from people. We can say we love God, but if it doesn't show up in our relationships, then it's hollow and empty. It, it, it's about relational love. It's about the need for it. And then the fifth book that a lot of times people don't think about when they think of John, but this apostle of love ends up writing the final book of the Bible, the mysterious one that oftentimes is so intriguing because it speaks of end times and has some elements in it that are sometimes hard to appreciate. And they're symbolic, yes, but also historic. There's many facets to it. That book John wrote as the last living apostle when he was exiled to the island of Patmos, we call it the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation was written after John had been a pastor for many years in, in Ephesus. He eventually was put out into a place of exile. And on, that, and on that island, he writes this letter. And that letter actually also speaks of love. A lot of people don't realize it, but it, in a mysterious way, it talks about the conquering love of God. That when all is said and done, it is the love of God that prevails over evil, over all that is wrong, over sin and over death. It's about the conquering Lamb of God. It's about the beauty of the love of God. So I say that because John is a man immersed in love, but that's not how he started. Um, and go back, if you can, in your handout there, you'll see in Mark 3, I want to show you something, because Jesus gave him a nickname. Look at his nickname, all right? It says here, it says then, it's Mark 3, verse 14, it says, then he appointed 12 of them, and he called them his apostles, and they were to accompany him, and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to alter things in the spirit, cast out demons, and these are the 12 he chose, Simon, whom he named Peter, and there it is, James, and there it is, John, the sons of Zebedee, that was their father, but Jesus gave them a nickname. He called them the sons of thunder. And the reason he gave them that name, it appears, is because it was to indicate the explosiveness of their dispositions. They had a fiery temper. They were men, of, John was passionate. Um, he was probably the youngest of all the disciples, but he was, the most, he was intensely passionate. That passion would ultimately use, be used for the good. But negatively, John's passion came out like this. It came out as anger. It came out as contention. It came out as self-seeking. It created a smallness to his world. But then on a positive side, that same quality in him came out at, as loyalty, as as courage, um, it came out as intensity and, and fierce commitment. So the same quality in a negative way was damaging, but in a positive way it was very wonderful and beautiful. 
And, and I think, again, I alluded to this earlier, but there was in him, a, there was in this man of, of passion with a fiery temper, a tender underside that was just waiting to be cultivated by Jesus. Like many of us, there were a lot of things that the Lord wanted to do in his life. Now, John reminds us of what God can do in all of us, and I'm going to put a couple of things up just to get us thinking about it because we've laid the foundation of kind of who he is. One of the things John reminds us of, and here it is, number one, is that God really does want to transform and renew all of us. There's no question about that. It doesn't matter what season of life we're in. It doesn't matter how old we are. It doesn't matter what our occupation is. All of us. God has something he wants to expand and renew and grow. It's a deep conviction that shows up time and time again. There are areas of our lives. You know, in the great chapter of Romans, the 12th chapter, the Apostle Paul opens it up with this expansive word where he says, I beseech you, my brothers and sisters, by the tender mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a sacrifice, but a living sacrifice, not a dead one, unto God, which is just your reasonable service in light of the amazing things that Jesus has done. And then, and then he went on to say this. This is verse 2 of that 12th chapter. He says this, don't copy, look at this, the behavior, don't copy the customs, don't copy the, the, the things of this world, but instead, he says, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Interesting. So seek to live counterculturally. Do not simply be absorbed by everything that's going on and all the prevailing trends, but instead learn to be a person who lives against the grain and seeks to be open to the transformation that God wants to bring. Notice, though, where is that transformation? Transform us into a new person by what? By changing the way we think. So much of our struggle is with our mind. So many of our issues have to do with how we think, how we feel. And so many of the times where we really are stumbling and struggling and having a hard time with is because we can't get ourselves into a right place of thinking. And one of the things we are invited into as we think about transformation is how to think differently. And one of the things God wants to do is get us to think not in a way that simply moves along with things, but learn how to allow his mind to inform us, to work with us, to help us so that we can get past things, so we have a certain type of resiliency and a health that begins to emerge. God wants to grow and expand us. But notice, number two, when he does that, part of how he grows us, part of how he changes us, is he calls us out of a certain context. God usually calls us, number two, out of the context of our own individuality and experience. I point that out because don't rush past this. When Jesus called these men to follow him, he, he used the language. You saw it. He used their language. He says, I want you to follow me, and I want to teach you how to be. They were fishermen. And he says, I want to teach you how to fish for people. He uses who they are as an invitation for them to find themselves in him. Just like this, God, look, God will use our backgrounds. God will use our giftings. We all have giftings. We all have certain experiences that we've had in life. We all have certain ways of saying, we've got unique dispositions. Um, so we have passions that make us who we are. God, God wants to use that and speak his grace through who we are. The language of who we are, the way he made us, is, is part of the, the way we've emerged. I mean, I know, I know this can sound mysterious, but he, in Psalm 139, he says, I knew you when you were in your mother's womb. I, what does that even mean? You know, how, you're, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. 
God, there's unique things that God's placed in all of us. Part of the joy of following him is learning how to allow us to emerge in the person he calls us to be. And by the way, that is not just something, oh, it happens once when I'm young or happens once when I come to know Jesus. No, it, it is an ongoing thing that God will do at different times in our lives as he busts us out into new places. If you can think of like Michelangelo's, you know, men in marble or people in marble, how when he would, he said when he was chiseling away, he, he was letting them out. And sometimes you'll see ones that are half finished. It's like someone's stuck. But the, he says, I'm, I'm not creating something. I'm letting them out. And in a way, that's exactly what God does. And there are certain times in our lives, if you can think of it this way, there are certain times where it's like just a little piece. But every now and then, big part will fall out. And all of a sudden, a part of us comes and emerges and grows and expands. But here's the, here's the third piece of this, is that when he does that, right, his desire, look at this, is not to, and this is going to show, the reason I can say this is just how he's going to work with John. It's not, it's not to sort of, change our essential core, but rather to modify and harness it in a way that makes it life-giving, not destructive or self-destructive. You see that? So it's about fine, again, it's about getting free to be who he made us to be, but a lot of times we're bound up in places. We're stuck. And part of following Christ is learning how to live as the man and the woman that he made us to be in him. It's really finding ourselves for the first time. And that's a part of the invitation we're given. And that, but here's the thing, as we're going to see in a moment, that's not always easy. It really isn't. It's easy to say. A lot harder to get to. But, I, but I'm convinced that that's how the Lord does it. And he wants us to be open to his workings. So how does that happen? Let's push in a little bit further. These are just tools, just handles, things for us to explore. But it's our start on this little journey we're making together. But one of the ways that change comes, and this might sound a little controversial, but I've noted this, it's true as well. I think it's obvious, we'll see it. Change often is a result, number one, of dissatisfaction. A lot of real breakthrough moments in our lives come because we're not happy with what the status quo is. The more dissatisfied we are. Now, I get it. There is a blessing and contentment in Godliness. I'm not suggesting that's not true. But I am going to say that frequently the more dissatisfied we are with a certain situation, especially if something is not working well, the more likely it is that we will be open to new solutions. So a lot of times openness to new possibilities is a result of being like dissatisfied. Think about the, We talked about it last week. The prodigal son, even though that wasn't the, the primary focus, if you remember in Jesus' story, he, it's when he gets to the place where he goes, I can't stand this anymore. I'm going to die here. I've got nothing left to lose. I'm going home. I don't care how humbling it is. I don't care. I'm going. I'm, I'm not staying here. He, he got to the bottom. And then he was ready to go and risk something. And a lot of times what we say is that when the Lord is chiseling away at something, that it, it's out of the, the wrestling places, out of the places of brokenness that God often does his most amazing work. Because it's in those places where we tend to be most open. From, the, from those beginning places comes the breakthrough places. They become catalysts for new possibilities that, would have, that we would have never actually maybe even allowed to have happen in us. But, but we felt so beaten, so, so defeated, um, so confined, so, so frustrated that we said, Lord, I'm open. I'm open. Show me my pathway. I'm, I, I'm open. Now, I, we, in, in Hebrews uh, 12, 
verse 11, a verse that I've been thinking a little bit about lately, says this. It says, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. Oh, by the way, that verse, this verse here was meant to be encouraging. <laughs> I, when you read the chapter, it's like, this is for your encouragement. And I'm going, that's not encouraging. Okay, but it actually is. It says, no discipline when it's happening is actually is enjoyable. He know, then he says, no, actually it's painful. Which is how we feel sometimes. If you've ever known pain, it's real. It's real. And a lot of times this is a promise to claim, but afterwards, if we'll just allow the Lord to be welcomed into that pain, it will bring forth something peace. Put, if we can keep that back up for a moment, it will bring forth something peaceable, something life-giving. Think about that for a moment. For those who are, look at that phrase, for those who are trained by it, those who submit to the wisdom of what God is trying to do through this thing. It may not even be a good thing, but God can use it to bring about life in us. Again, chisel pieces away, increasingly free to be who he's made me to be. I, in, my, in my seminary days, one of the professors that had the most effect on me years back introduced this concept. He said, Terry, it's like this. It's like there are these moments, and you've heard me now. You've, some of you have been here for a while. You've heard me say this before. He said he talked about the breakdown that leads to the breakthrough that leads to the breakout. And he says the breakdown is, is the tough place. It's where, we, it's where we're struggling. We're wrestling with God. It's where we feel like we've lost. We feel like we're stuck. We're not going to get out of this thing. It's going to defeat us. We have no, we can't do it. It's not going to make it. Ever felt that way? I'm not going to make it, Lord. Um, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do it. These places, this is where we break. But in the breakdown, it's just like the brokenness. Brokenness creates openness. It, brokenness allows for God to do things in us that he, we maybe would not have let him do. But when we break, then all of a sudden they think about it. There are these moments where we're stuck. We, you can get stuck in a break. I mean, you can get broke down for a while a lot of times. And it's like we're struggling, we're struggling. Then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, God, something that starts to happen. And we, we experience, and it's happening to some of us, we experience a breakthrough. It's like, oh, oh Lord, I, I'm, starting to, I'm starting to sense I'm coming out of this thing. And then there are these moments where we go, see, but the goal, breakthrough is one thing. It's kind of like I'm getting past this. Starting to get stronger. But breakout, oh, breakout is when all of a sudden, now I'm on the run. Now I'm on the run. Now it's like it all opens up. It's just opening up for me. I'm moving. Now I'm moving. I'm moving. It's, I'm freed up. It's, it's getting out. I'm getting out. I'm really, I'm moving forward. You see what I'm talking about? The breakdown that oftentimes gets us open to God so that we eventually find the breakthrough that leads us into the breakout. You know, I'm a, a lot of real growth happens right here. A lot of real growth. A lot of, a lot of positive things happen that affect a lot of people in amazing ways because of what happens when we're on the run all of a sudden. Now I'm running. I'm freed up. I'm freed. I got to let out. I'm free. Those are moments in our lives. But a lot of that didn't come a lot of times until we get, get through this. And that is hard. That's not easy. And so here's the thing. Change, secondly, takes, it takes, it takes effort and energy. And, and, and so, okay. I thought you said it was God. I did. But that doesn't mean we don't have a part to play. So we're going to have to be open to putting in some work. Um, 
But then someone says, well, what happens when you feel so beaten and discouraged you don't even have the energy to even try? I said, well, that is where God's grace comes in. Throw yourself on the mercy of God and just let him know how powerless you feel. And don't be afraid to weep and cry and bring your heart to him with all the numbness. Say, Lord, breathe you who are the life giver. Bring life into dead places. That's what you do. Lord, I bring you, I bring you even my feelings of despair. That's the Psalms. That's real. That's honest. Lord, I'm stuck here. Lord, I'm addicted here. Lord, I'm tempted to go back into places. Lord, I feel lonely. Lord, I, I, I have no power in me to want to even contend for what is right. I pray that you will help me, fill me with energy, fill me with strength, fill me with the desire to want to have the things that you have for me. Fill me with this, Lord. Give me the want to. But here's the third piece, and this one I've been thinking a lot about as well, is this, that change, notice this, change requires insight. What do I mean by that? Because... One of them says we need credible know-how. Okay, here it is. Want to without know-how produces frustration. Want to without know-how produces frustration and discour- deep discouragement. I want to, but I don't know how. I want to, but I don't know how. That produces despair. I'll never get out. I'm stuck. See, want to without know-how produces frustration and despair. So what God wants to do is God wants to teach us. That's why he, he talks about staying close to his words. That's why he talks about the value of, of spiritual training. That's why we talk about the need for godly counsel. That's why we talk about read, read our Bible, scripture study. We're not just saying these things, but we're also talking about having safe places for healthy vulnerability. That's why we talk about getting to a small group. Out of the small groups come the context of friendships. Out of those friendships comes the possibility of real genuine openness as we seek to be real people before God, growing and honest and praying for one another to be healed and grow and to be better, to be an encourager, to you cover me, I cover you. Jesus never said only one come. He always sent them out two by two. And when he formed his first team, it was a group of people. It wasn't just one or two. It was actually 12. And there were other people attached to that as well. It was community. That's the point. We all need to have those safe places where God can begin to speak to us. Much grace in Christ is mediated through other people. And if we're too afraid to invest relationally, what will happen is we will never get, a lot of times, all the grace that he means to give to us. Thereby requiring us to humble ourselves. And in our humility, God then, as he breaks our pride, and I'm not talking about reckless sharing. I am saying... It's hard to be get better without some degree of vulnerability. We're all wounded healers. Even every one of us. And not one of us doesn't struggle with something. But God knows that. He's calling us to grow and to become and to emerge, just like what happened with John. John starts out as a man with fire, but it was fire misdirected. By the time Jesus is done with him, it's, the dominant side is the blessing. It's the love of God flowing out of him with life-giving. Here's the deal. I'll leave it with this. You see, the, you see the verse there? This is what God wants to build. Through wisdom, a house is built. I put it in there from Proverbs. By understanding, it's established. 
By knowledge, the rooms are filled with precious and pleasant riches. Do you see that? You know what that's called? That's called breakthrough and breakout. That's the mass, that's a life, that's an analogy of life construction. Life construction at the foundation, that's hard. Breakthrough means I'm building something. Breakout is, you can see it, filling its room with rare and precious riches. It's like the interior, it's like God is the master interior decorator. And he's saying, I want to decorate things on the inside that are beautiful to behold, and it'll show up on the outside. And here it is. Whenever God's seeking to transform in us is meant to be a blessing externally in the lives of other people. John was transformed to be a blesser. So it will be with you and me. It's not just about me it's about, or us getting our transformation to feel better. That's good. But that's not the goal. Serve. Give. Bless. This is the way of Jesus for that purpose. Let's pray. We'll close out. We've got a, a great song connected to refinement right behind this. Lord, I want to ask you to bless this time. Just let these words settle in according to your will in our lives. We need it. We need your grace. Um, some of us, you really want to help us with, with learning how to, to confront things. That's going to happen maybe for some of us in the context of community, sometimes through good counsel. Um, some of us just growing in awareness of your words. But I know one thing. You call us to places of transformation because you want us to be a people who are capable of blessing those around us, those closest to us and those we haven't even met yet but are destined to impact and affect on your behalf. Let the love of God dominate our lives. And I pray that as we close out, Lord, not only honor, honor this time as we give as a people, but that also the song that we close with would remind us of the value and the beauty of allowing your refining hand to make us even more pure than even, even gold. Pull out the impurities. Let the purity of your life, the goodness of your life, flow through us in, in, in increasing and greater dimensions. This is what I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.